You're listening to audio from Cornerstone Christian Fellowship, located in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. We hope this message is helpful to you in your journey with God. For the live stream archive of our worship services, you can visit youtube.com slash cornerstonelebanonpa. Christian community is best lived out in face-to-face relationships with one another. We encourage you to physically participate in a local church setting within your area. Learn more about our faith community by visiting cornerstonelebanon.com. Good morning, Cornerstone. So good to be with you today, and just very honored to be able to share the word of the Lord with you. And as you can see, I'm sporting my Johnny Cash look. (laughs) It's not because I'm a fan of Johnny Cash, it's just because I like to wash my own clothes. For some reason, my wife knows I like to wash my own clothes, so I wash my own clothes. And this morning when I went to the clothes basket, all I had was a black shirt black t-shirt and a black pair of pants so <laughs> there we go amen all right well let's just go ahead and jump right into the word we're in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 14 15 and 19 and uh, I asked Justin if he could have the scriptures for us so we're going to go ahead and read that verse 14 says for this reason I bow my knee to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ from whom the whole family in the heaven and earth is named, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So I want to just start with verse 14. Paul says, for this reason I bow my knee. And the first thing I want us to realize is that two times in Ephesians, uh, Paul breaks into prayer. You know, two times in the book of Ephesians, Paul begins to pour his heart out in prayer. And it's as if the uh, awe and the wonder and the glory of what he's writing about suddenly fills his heart. That the glory of the gospel that he's writing about just suddenly fills his heart. And the only relief that he can find is through the expression of prayer. You know, this glorious thing that only God can do, destroying every dividing wall through the cross of Christ, and now gathering and unifying a family to himself from every tribe and nation, the all of it and the glory of it has filled my heart, and all I can do is bow my knee in prayer and pray for the people of God. And it reminds me of Solomon in the temple. Solomon was in the temple prayerfully dedicating the temple to the Lord, and suddenly in the middle of his prayer of dedication, the manifested glory of God just comes and fills that temple, And it's such a glorious and weighty manifestation that the people can't, you know, they can't stand under it and they have to kneel and bow under it. And we know that that God doesn't, in this new covenant, he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. You know, he dwells in the temple of his people. And it's as if Paul is writing about the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and suddenly the glory of the gospel just descends upon his heart. And the only thing that he can do is just bow his heart under the glory and really begin to pray for the people of God. And uh, in this posture of prayer, this bowing of the knee reflects what's in his heart. You know, first of all, it reflects selflessness. You know, Paul is in a Roman prison. He's confined and then he's in chains. But nowhere in Paul's gospel do you find him praying to be relieved from prison. 
Nowhere in Paul's, you know, in this letter do you find him praying for more favorable circumstances. You know, at the very heart of his prayer is always the glory of God and the welfare of the church. And uh, when you really study Paul's letters and you really look at Paul's prayer time in his letters, you can't help but be humbled and amazed by how selfless he is. And I believe he's, he's so selfless and his prayers are so selfless because he has one consuming passion. And you find that passion in verse 19. You know, in, in verse 19, Paul writes that you may be filled with the fullness of God. So Paul's consuming passion was that the revelation of all that Christ is and the revelation of all that Christ done would be experienced in their lives in its fullness. That was the passion in Paul's heart. So secondly, this bowing of the knee, it reflects humbleness. You know, Paul's writing this incredible revelation of what God has done through the death and resurrection of Christ. But at the same time, there's this earnestness in Paul's heart that if God's people experience the fullness of it, only God can do that. You know, he just, he just senses in his heart that only if, if the people of God are truly going to understand what Christ has done in its fullness, that's something only God can do. And uh, there is an, a, an incredible reality that every pastor, that every teacher of the word, that every minister of the word knows in their life. And that incredible reality is simply this, an incredible confidence in God but an incredible dependence upon God. You know, ministers of the word, we have an incredible confidence that God's going to be faithful to his word, but we also have an utter understanding that God must be faithful to his word. You know, as ministers, we're, we're very appreciative, appreciative of the gifts and the talents that God gives us, but yet we know in our hearts our gifts and our talents in themselves are powerless. Our gifts and our talents that God has given us, it's absolutely powerless to perform anything that has eternal value in the people of God. You know, God must be the one to strengthen. God must be the one to transform. And so it's just this, this understanding of how utterly dependent upon the Lord we are, that is what drives us to our knees in prayer. You know, whether, you know, we're putting Sunday school lessons together or we're putting sermons together, it's just that utter understanding that only God can strengthen, only God can transform that really causes us to sink to our knees in prayer. And uh, because this is such a big point with me, there's something that I live that I would just like to, to add here. You know, for 30-something years, I, I've had the wonderful opportunity to teach at some international school of ministry. And because of my own personal journey with the Lord, in my last few years of, of teaching there, there's just something that I really begin to bring to the students, and, and that is simply this. Listen, in your Christian walk and in your ministry, your dependence upon God is your greatest strength. You see, dependence upon God is like a well inside of you. And the deeper your dependence, the deeper your well, the deeper your strength in God. So what's going to happen is you're on a journey. God's going to carve out this well of dependence. He's going to carve it deeper and deeper 
So you're on a journey with God where he's going to press you in the weakness. He's going to press you in the weakness. He's going to press you in the weakness. Because the more he presses you in the weakness, the more he can carve out that dependence in your life. And the more he carves out that dependence in your life, the more he can fill it with his strength. The deeper, oh, the deeper your strength. So, you know, that, that's the journey that we have with God. Our journey with God is not a journey of strength. It's a journey of weakness. It's a journey where God makes the self weaker and weaker and weaker so that he can be stronger and stronger and stronger in our life. So it's a journey. And Paul knew this journey well. Paul describes his personal journey of weakness this way. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses. That was Paul's journey. Why the journey? For when I am weak, then I am strong. So again, our journey with God is not a, a journey of strength, but it's a journey of weakness where, where self just becomes weaker and weaker so that God can become stronger and stronger. And that's the journey of the minister. And since we're talking about wells, you know, this, this dependence in our life being a well that God carves out, you know, I just want to take a moment to talk about one of my favorite Bible characters, and his name is Moses. So if you could put... Exodus chapter 2. Let me just read this. Read, read along with me as we read it. It says, Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and he looked that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Then he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Did you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. So what's happening here is Moses understands that the call of God is upon his life to deliver his people. And it's here in Exodus chapter 2 that Moses finally decides, well, it's time to step into my calling. So he, he begins to step into his calling, but we have to ask the question, you know, what is Moses' problem here? What is his problem? What is it that God can't use yet? Well, if you look with me at verse 12, it says, So he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian." So I want you to, to picture this in your mind. Okay, Moses is, is stepping into his calling. And the Bible says the first thing that he does, he doesn't want to be seen while he's about to do. So the Bible says that he looks this way, and he looks this way, and he looks this way, and he looks this way. I mean, he just takes a good look around. But here's the question we have to ask. What is, what is the one direction he didn't look? He didn't look up. And you know why he didn't look up? Because there's absolutely nothing in his heart that senses his need for God. There's absolutely nothing in his heart that senses that he needs God's help. There's nothing there. So in other words, Moses is a very self-reliant man. And the reason why he's so self-reliant is because he, he grew up an Egyptian prince. And all of his life, Egypt just ingrained in him a confidence in his own strength and a boast in his own strength. 
But, you know, how many of you know when it comes to fulfilling the call of God, it doesn't matter how strong you are in yourself. It is absolutely insufficient to fulfill the will of God. The reason why it's insufficient is because God's not interested in performing a man-sized task. He's interested in performing a God-sized task so that he can get God-sized glory. So what happened here, just to make a long story short, God allowed him to fail in his own strength and in his fear and failure, that's ultimately where your own strength will take you. You, all, you will one day run into something bigger than you are. And so in his own fear and failure, Moses runs for his life. And where did he finally end up? Well, if you look at verse 15, it says he ends up sitting by a well. Now at this well, Moses, what's happening at this well, Moses feels like he's finally far enough from, from the arm of Pharaoh that he can just sit down a little while. And at this well, what's happening is he's beginning to grieve over how his own strength has failed him. He's beginning to feel the disappointment in how his own strength has let him down. And I'm sure if me and you would have been standing there, we would have looked at Moses and we would have said, Moses, how do you feel right now? Moses probably would have looked at the well and said, I feel like I'm at the bottom of the well. You know, you can't get in a lower place than the bottom of the well. I feel like I'm at the bottom of this well. And you know what? Moses would have been right. But let me ask you a question. When you're trapped at the bottom of a well, where is the only direction you can look? Up, right? If your help is going to come, it's going to come from this direction. If your rescue is going to come, it's going to come from this direction. If your deliverance is going to come, it's going to come from this direction. So in other words, the point I'm simply making is that for the first time in his life, Moses is at a place where the only place he can look is up. And that's where he's beginning his journey from, from self-reliance to God-dependency. And here's my point. Like Paul, if we're going to be that person who lives in the power of the bowed knee, if we're going to be that person who lives in the power of being utterly needy and dependent upon the Lord, there will be times we're going to find ourselves in our own wells where we have absolutely no other place to do but look up. And I'm going to tell you something. I've been in some of those wells. You can feel absolutely trapped in those wells. I'm telling you, the well can be a scary place because you can feel so helpless. You can feel so trapped. You can feel so powerless. But we have to understand, though it is a trapped place, it's a phenomenal place because God is cultivating a deeper dependence upon God. When you find yourself in a place where you feel absolutely trapped and there's nowhere to look but up, it's because God is cultivating a deeper dependence in your life because the deeper the dependence, the deeper his strength. And, and that's what he's doing. So before I move on, let me just encourage someone today. Does anybody need encouraging today? If there's somebody here and you're just in a place in your life, in your circumstances where you feel trapped, I want to tell you two things. First of all, look up because your help cometh from the Lord and God is a very present help in time of trouble. And secondly, you're coming out. And when you come out, you're going to come out with a deeper intimacy. You're going to come out with a deeper dependence and you're going to come out with a deeper strength in God. You know, one of my favorite verses, Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Who is this coming out of the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? 
In other words, the same person that went in the wilderness isn't the same person coming out of the wilderness because when you are in the wilderness, God has so transformed you, I don't recognize who you are anymore. Who is this coming out of the wilderness? And I just want to encourage you that you are coming out. You're not there in the pit to stay. And thirdly, and quickly, the bowing of the knee reflects submissiveness. To bow your knee is a posture of submitting. You know, the picture of Paul bowing his knee is a sacred picture of how Paul lived his life in submission to his Lord and Savior. And from Paul's life, we learn submission is the deepest expression of faith. There's not a greater, deeper expression of one's trust in the Lord than submission. You know, someone who walks in humble submission to Christ, their life will speak louder and deeper about trust than any preacher's sermons. You know, the world can ignore a preacher standing behind a glass pulpit, but it can't ignore a life that's preaching from the cross. And that's what it represents in Paul's life. So it represents selflessness, humbleness, and submissiveness. Well, I got to move on. Can't just preach on that one thought alone. Because there is somewhere I'm trying to get to. So going back to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knee to the Father of Jesus Christ. Then he says in verse 15, for whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And I really want to emphasize family. And here's what I want us to understand. At the very heart of the gospel is God creating a family from the earth that he's always wanted. The very heart of redemption, it's God creating a family from the earth that he's always wanted. You know, there are a lot of deep theological words in Christianity that we do need to know, we do need to understand. Words like glorification, sanctification, justification, very important words. But can we just keep it simple? At the very heart of the gospel, it's just God creating a family that he's always wanted. That's at the very center of the gospel. You know, Romans 8 says, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So according to Romans 8, at the very heart of the new covenant, God just wants to be a father to his children. That's at the very heart. You know, God just wants to walk in a very personal and intimate relationship with his children. And let, let me just say it this way. From Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 2, when everything is finally over, when it's finally over, everything is finally over, the only thing God gets out of it is a family. The only thing God gets out of it is sons and daughters that bear his image. In the power of grace. That's all he gets out of it, but that's all he wants. And that's the gospel in a nutshell. I'm creating a family from all over the earth that I want. Now, here's a thought that since we're talking about redemption at the center of his family, here's just a thought that I want to bring. You know, I was raised the son of a Baptist pastor in the deep, deep south. And my father started pastoring just as our nation was coming out of the civil rights movement. And the, the churches that 
God gave my father the pastor, they were all eaten up with racism. Listen, we had Ku Klux Klan members on the deacon board. I mean, it was just eaten up by racism. And they were very quick to tell my dad, listen, no black person will ever come in this church. And they were very quick to tell my dad, we're going to make sure our church stays lily white. So we didn't stay there long. As a kid, I, I remember moving all the time because, you know, my father would try to do a work, but we wouldn't stay there very long. And uh, it's sad to say that even though there has been some improvement, you know, that spirit still strives in the deep south. You know, when we're talking about, when we're talking about Division, a lot of times we talk about walls, but in the deep south, you don't have walls. What you have is railroad tracks. You know, in a typical southern town, you have a railroad track that runs right through the middle of the town, and you got the white community on one side, the black community on the other side, and they don't have anything to do with each other. Even their churches don't have anything to do with each other. They just don't have anything to do with each other. And what's really surprising is even those that... Uh, claim to have the Pentecostal experience, you know. Even those churches don't have anything to do with each other. Now, now please hear my heart, because I'm not trying to sound condescending or demeaning, demeaning, but the Pentecostal on the white side of the tracks, and the Pentecostals on the black side of the tracks, they all shout and run, they all speak in tongues, they all shout and get happy, but can I just tell you something? They still don't have anything to do with one another. And can I, can I just tell you this? Let me just tell you this. If all we read is Acts chapter 2, the people were filled with God and they spoke in other tongues. If that's all we read and that's what we get happy about, then we miss the whole point. See, in Acts chapter 2, what God is doing is when he fills his church and they begin to speak with tongues, what God is beginning to do is he's beginning to give his church a power to break down dividing walls. You know, it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 11, it says, The Jews and the Gentiles from all over the world declared, We hear them declaring the wonderful works of God in our own tongue. And what was the wonderful works they were hearing in their own tongue? Here is what it is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And please, just please hear my heart again, because again, I'm not trying to be condescending but when I walk into a church that claims to be Pentecostal when I walk into that church I'm not looking for I'm not looking to see who's shouting I'm not looking to see who's running I'm not looking to see who's speaking in tongues what I'm looking for is a power that breaks down dividing walls that heals and restores relationships that brings love and fellowship to every culture and color that's what I'm looking for because that was the whole purpose of Pentecost, to begin to tear down these dividing walls. And it reminds me so much of John 13, 35. John 13, 35, we know it so well. It says, by this will all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. See that word disciple. That word disciple is not a title. It's transforming power. That's what it is. And what Jesus is saying is people are going to know you're being transformed into my likeness and my image when they see Christ-like love in your life. 
And here's what I want to say. Are you guys with me this morning? Here's what I want to say. Listen, this love that Jesus is talking about, by this all men know that we're my disciples, that you have love for one another. This love that Jesus is talking about isn't a flowery kind of love. It's not this love where we all put on our Jesus loves you faces and so do I faces and we come to church. That's not the, well, that's not the love he's talking about. He's not talking about a love where when we come to church, we just all grab hands and, okay, let's all sing it together. All you need is love, 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 love. All you, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about an overcoming love. A love that overcomes everything the world is throwing at us to divide us. That's what he's talking about. What he is saying is no matter what the world throws at you to divide you, racism, prejudice, bigotry, the love inside of you, the love of Christ inside of you cannot be divided, cannot be overcome, cannot be triumphed over. The love in your heart is stronger than anything the world can throw at you. And in a world exploding in every direction, people are going to know you are my disciples when they see this unconquerable, undividable love in you. That's what he's saying. It's not a flowery love. It's a powerful love. And what I love about John 13, 35, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. That word know in the Greek language, there's actually three different kind of words for know in the Greek language. And this word simply means to answer a question. So what this word simply means is knowledge revealed by asking a question. So in other words, here's what Jesus is saying. There are so many people's, there's so many questions in people's hearts that they really desperately won't answer it. And when they see this undividable, unconquerable love in your heart for one another, those questions are going to be answered. For example, is Jesus really who he says he is? Is he really the savior of the world? Is he really the lamb of God who come to take the sins of the world? Jesus is saying, when they see this unconquerable, undividable love in your heart, there's going to be an answer in their heart. Yes, Jesus is everything that he said he is. Give you another example. So many religions in the world, Muslims, Hindu, Buddhists, who's following the right God? Jesus is saying when they see that unconquerable, undividable love that you have for one another, they're going to know, yeah, it's Christians who are following the right God. I truly believe with all my heart the love of Christ is the greatest apologetics there is. We may not have all the answers to the Bible questions, but I'm telling you, when they see a love and a fellowship that can't be conquered and divided, it answers their questions. I don't have to have all the Bible questions. All I have to do is love you with the love of Christ. And their questions will be answered. All right. Prayer and practice. Prayer and practice. Colossians chapter 3, 11 through 13. It says, There is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So what Paul is saying is the church community is to have no dividing walls. There's no more dividing walls between Scythians and barbarians and Jews and Greeks. You know, we're one family. But you, we got to remember the issues they're going to have to work through. 
These people have some issues they're going to have to work through. They're going to have to work through prejudice. They're going to have to work through bigotries. They're going to have to work through racism. They're going to have to work through um, just all these kind of issues. That's why Paul says in verse 12, he says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. And what Paul is simply saying is if community is going to work, if we are going to grow in love and fellowship and become everything that Christ desires us to become, it's going to require humbleness. It's going to require patience. It's going to require forgiving. Community will not survive and thrive without patience and forgiveness. In verse 13, I don't, verse 13, it says bearing with one another. You know what bearing with one another means? It means putting up with people's ways that just rub you the wrong way. How many of you know when God puts you somewhere, they're just people that's going to just rub you the wrong way? And in order for the community to work, it requires patience, humility, forgiveness, giving each other room to grow and become who God wants us to become. And let me just end with this. How many of you know we're all under construction? You understand that? We're all under construction. Has anyone here ever worked on a construction site? What's the one thing construction sites have in common? They're noisy and they're messy. And we all have places in our life that are no noisy and messy. But we have to remember we are a work in progress. And we've got to walk in forgiveness. We've got to walk in patience. We can't be so quick to harbor grudges. You know, if you ever go to Ruth Graham's gravesite, wife of Billy Graham, on her tombstone, you will find these words. Construction is over. Thank you for your patience. <laughs> well, she's gone, but I'm still here. So on this side of heaven, I just want to say I'm still under construction. I'm so grateful for your patience. If you'll be patient with me, I'll be patient with you. Can the praise and worship team come up now? So here is our prayer and practice. By the grace of God, can we just commit to being patient and kind to one another as we are in our process? Can we not be so quick to be offended by people's personalities that just rub us the wrong way? And just say, listen, if you'll have mercy on me as I grow, I'll have mercy on you as you grow. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Can we do that? You know, I have a mantra I try to live by, and that mantra is simply this. Be kind to everyone, because everyone's in a battle. It doesn't matter how nasty somebody's attitude is. I'm going to try to be kind to them, because I have no idea what kind of battle they're in. And it takes a lot of grace, but I got this mantra, the nastier you're going to be to me, the kinder I'm going to be to you. And can, by, by the power of God's grace, can we just make that their prayer and practice that we're going to just be patient with one another and be graceful with one another. Amen.